from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, August 14th. Today, the economic indicator that could point to a recession, the man whose witness account started a protest movement, and the magic of an open piano night. I mean, I want to ask you who you are and what you do. Sure. But Damien Paletta, economics reporter at The Post, we know who you are. That's right. We've been spending too much time together, which means that usually there's like dark clouds circling over us. Well, that is exactly what I want to talk to you about, because I have seen some headlines this morning about things happening with the economy that I don't really understand, but they seem very scary, and I would like you to explain them to me. I mean, I would say they are very scary, and what's really scary is that in the past two or three weeks, we've had the stock market whipsaw all over the place. It means everyone's confused, and the market's like trying to anticipate what's going to happen next, and sure enough... Stock market went up about 400 points on Tuesday, and it's already down close to 500 points on Wednesday. And that's because, you know, there's this fear that we could really be entering a recession in the next 12 months. So what was this news that happened this morning that sent the stock market tumbling? Sure. So the big news was that the yield curve, which has to do with the interest rates charged to different bonds, is inverted for the first time since the mid-2000s, before the Great Recession. That sounds bad, but I also don't know what that means. Yeah, it is bad, and a lot of people don't know what it means. So the yield curve has to do with the bond market. The government spends more money than it brings in through revenue, and they have this huge deficit. And in order to borrow money to pay that deficit, it has to go out and issue bonds. And they issue different kinds of bonds, short-term bonds, medium-term bonds, and long-term bonds that you can invest in and get some return back. It's like a safe investment, right? It's yeah, not- that's the thing that people do if they're, like, buying a bond for their kid and that, you know, when the kid grows up, they're going to get money from, from that bond. Or if you're a bank and you're buying, like, a bazillion dollars of bonds because it's a safe place to park your money, right? So typically the interest rates they pay pay on these bonds are lower or smaller for shorter-term bonds, and then they're higher on the longer-term bonds because they need to make them more attractive for investors. They want to incentivize people giving their money over to the government for long periods of time. Exactly, because why would you buy a 10-year bond at a 1% interest rate if you could buy a 2-year bond at a 10% interest rate? Doesn't, you know, it doesn't make any sense. But that's what's happened now with this inverted yield curve. The interest rates are higher on the short-term debt and lower on the long-term debt. And the reason for this is because investors have been plowing money into these longer-term bonds. And when investors pump their money into the bonds, the interest rates go down because the government doesn't have to make them as attractive anymore. And you have this kind of upside-down world, you know, this kind of Alice in Wonderland economy that's not the way it's supposed to be. So this is happening because people are afraid about what's going to happen in the near to medium term. So they're trying to, like, hide their money away for the long term because they think that there's, at least for the next few years, that there might be a recession. Bingo. They'll put their money in medium term instruments or investments, even if they get a very small return, because that's better than putting the money in the stock market where it's going to get tanked or putting it in a short-term treasury where it's going to come up soon and you're going to have to figure out what to do with it then. 
And then I saw that the president tweeted about this this afternoon. Right. He's trying to spin this as a positive, saying that it's an example of millions of dollars pouring into the U.S. economy, when really it's billions of dollars hiding in U.S. Treasury debt because they don't know where else to put the money. And the real reason that everyone's freaking out is because it's kind of this, like, grim reaper ghost that lurks before recessions, right? It's like, oh, boy, look who just walked through the door. It's coming. And so maybe not tomorrow, maybe not by Halloween, but by next year, you know, we're like looking at something pretty scary unless something dramatic changes. And this has been the case in the past, right? Absolutely, yeah. I consider the inverted yield curve like a recession death grip that like locks itself around the economy because, you know, going back decades, the last nine recessions have been presaged by an inverted yield curve, which is why the stock market feels confident now that one will come after this one. So then there was also news out of Europe about how the German economy is doing. And that also seems kind of scary. Yeah, it is. I mean, the German economy, which is the fourth biggest in the world, is contracting. Now, it's not in a full-blown recession yet, but it is shrinking. And We're sort of at a moment now in the global economy, right? I'm not down here visiting with you because it was kind of this quirky thing that happened today. Argentina's stock market has fallen 50% in the last few days, okay? The United Kingdom and Germany, two of the world's largest economies, appear to be contracting. China's economy is slowing. And when all these things happen together, it's scary. Now, the question is, is this just like a spasm that's going to be over in a few weeks and everything's going to go back to normal? Or are we beginning this kind of ugly stumble down the stairs that we're going to look back on and say, wow, that was the beginning of something really dark. We don't know the answer to that. The big difference, though, which is a little bit concerning for me, is during you know the Great Recession 2007-2008, world leaders all locked arms to try to you know solve the problems together. Now everyone's got a gun pointed at each other's head, and they're making it worse. So if you look at it like that, it's kind of, it's kind of worrisome. So you mentioned the trade war, and obviously this is something that we have had many conversations about in the past few weeks, the ups and downs of will there be tariffs, won't there be tariffs. And just this past Tuesday, President Trump announced that he's actually delaying the tariffs. Why did he do that, and what is the significance of that? It was very surprising. He announced that he was delaying tariffs on about $150 billion of goods imported from China. He said it was to protect the kind of Christmas holiday shopper from having to pay higher costs. And that was the first time that he had ever acknowledged that tariffs, which are an import tax paid by U.S. companies, those costs are passed along to consumers. When he said that he didn't want to impact Christmas shopping, what he was saying is he didn't want to drive up costs on consumers and hurt the economy going into 2020. He had always said that the Chinese were somehow magically paying for these tariffs, which wasn't true, but he kept insisting on it. So now, you know, we're starting to see signs from the White House of concern that these policies are hurting the economy. Now, maybe, you know, it's a short-term pain, long-term gain thing, we've heard. You know, maybe that's their plan. But they are saying, okay, it's not going to help in the short term. We can't afford to have the economy get any, you know, worse on our own doing. And so if we can, to, if we can kind of back away a bit, that's what we're going to do. And so that's what I think was really revealing to, to me and to others about what they announced. Because some of our colleagues have recently published this data about the fact that for sitting presidents who are seeking re-election, they have generally been unsuccessful when that year preceding the election has a recession. Exactly, right. Fears about the economy are one of the few things that can 
topple an incumbent president, that's for sure. And you know what I was thinking? I think a lot about with the economy is momentum, the direction things are going. The low unemployment rate right now is low. The stock market, even though it's come down a bit, is still relatively high. But the news seems to be breaking in one direction. If you remember when the president was elected, there was a lot of announcements from companies that they were going to be investing a bazillion dollars in this plant or that plant in Phoenix or whatever. And then right after the tax bill passed, you had all these companies announcing we're going to be giving bonuses to all these workers and, you know, Walmart and Target raised their wages. It seemed like everything was breaking in a good direction. And now all the news is like going the other way. And so, you know, it's not going to be terrible today. Um, there's not, we're not in a recession now. But everything is moving in kind of the wrong direction. And what's, you know, really bad for the White House is that this is all kind of snowballing into 2020, where all these things could collide and pile up. And we're seeing the president's starting to, like, freak out a little bit and keeps bullying the Fed to lower interest rates and all that stuff, you know, really intensifying. Damian Paletta covers economics for The Post. It's been five years since the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. And since then... So many other characters in this story have surfaced publicly, right? The prosecutor had to run for re-election, and Michael Brown's family has been on the, had wrote a book and was on a speaking tour. But there's one person who basically vanished from public view. The man who actually witnessed the shooting firsthand, a guy named Dorian. Reporter Wesley Lowry covered Ferguson for The Post. The first time most people would have heard the name Dorian Johnson was in the 24, 48 hours after Michael Brown was killed back in August of 2014. Me and my uh, friend, we was walking down the street in the middle of the street. He was the person who'd been with Michael Brown, and he very quickly did several local media interviews and eventually MSNBC interviews and CNN interviews where he talked about what he said happened that day. As he was running, the officer uh, was trying to get out of the car, and once he got out the car, he... uh, he pursued my friend, but his, his weapon was drawn. Now, he didn't see any weapon drawn at him. His account creates what we now know of as hands up, don't shoot. He shot again, and once my friend felt that shot, he turned around and he put his hands in the earth, and he started to get down, but the officer still approached with his weapon drawn, and he fired several more shots, and my friend died. After Dorian Johnson started talking publicly about what he had seen, what happened to him? So after Dorian came forward as the witness, there was this crush of attention. All the media members wanted to interview him and get him on camera. But he also became this kind of controversial figure, right, for folks who were convinced that Michael Brown was the aggressor, that there's no way this was an unjustified shooting. Dorian Johnson was kind of key. If you could prove he was a liar, he was untrustworthy, or he was a bad guy, then you could disregard his account of what had happened. And so he got a bunch of death threats. He was getting a bunch of attention. His family was getting harassed, phone calls and emails, people showing up outside of their house. So Dorian Johnson becomes a ghost. He basically goes into hiding. He stops doing interviews. He initially, one of the civil rights groups, puts him up in a hotel for a week. But then after that, his grandfather basically shuffles him from hotel to hotel for months, from August through November. Uh, while we we're awaiting the grand jury decision, Dorian Johnson is basically nowhere to be seen. 
he never joins the protests that are raging in Ferguson. He never becomes an activist himself. And that even after the grand jury decision not to charge Officer Darren Wilson, even after the Department of Justice concludes that it was very unlikely that Michael Brown's hands were up during the shooting and that Dorian Johnson's account probably wasn't completely true, or even if he had seen it that way, that they didn't have evidence to support it, Dorian remains a ghost. We've heard almost nothing from him since those initial interviews in August 2014. So that was August 2014, and now five years later, you went back to try to find Dorian Johnson. Certainly. And it it was interesting. I was doing an interview. Obviously, I covered a lot of Ferguson and Black Lives Matter for The Post. And I was doing an interview about the upcoming five-year anniversary. And someone said, well, whatever happened to Dorian Johnson? And I realized I didn't know the answer. And typically, when someone asks you a question on your beat and you don't know the answer, it's a good sign that you should go figure out the answer. And so I started trying to track down Dorian. All right, I knew some of his family members. I knew some of the activists he'd been associated with a little bit. None of them had any idea where he was. His Facebook page was like years out of date. There was nothing there. And finally, I tracked him down through this local record label where he is working on music. <clears throat> Got that monkey on my back, but I ain't taking off no baiting nape. I told you pull it to the highest vocal. Because this your intro, you got to come in like busting through a door in your head. Fact. Got that monkey on my back, but I ain't taking off no baiting nape. So I was able to like get to Dorian, go to St. Louis and spend, you know, a few days with him kind of seeing what his life looks like now, but also talking back through all of these things. Mike Body. Because Mike Body was up here. Yeah. He stopped us up there. He stopped us up there. He didn't even get to the driveway when he was running. I was standing where we went back to Canfield Drive where the shooting happened and walked around. He showed me where his apartment was at the time, and he, we walked through the details of the shooting. So what was it like going out there and meeting him in person? I think that spending time with him underscored something that I've known to be true from other reporting. Ferguson and in St. Louis, the protests themselves and the characters around them were largely poor black and brown people from the city. And... What that meant is that even as you know, everyone from around the nation parachuted into town and this big national movement kicked off, when the movement moved on, those folks were kind of stuck back where they were. Dorian Johnson grew up in a really rough part of St. Louis. On the north side of St. Louis City, Walnut Park area. He's had a ton of friends and family members who've been killed via gun violence. So my first real incident that kind of took a real toll on me, I was 17. I just, just was finna get out of high school. He has a bullet in his kneecap still from the time when he was shot as a junior in high school. Coming home from practice one day and just walking home, and it's a crossfire. A, a drive-by shooting was going on, getting off the bus in Walnut Park. Dorian's really interesting, right? He's like rail thin and very athletic and is also kind of jovial and comedic. You know, he's very charismatic. He's the kind of person who knows everyone in the neighborhood, who has a big family and is very warm in his interactions. I'm a naturally loving person. So uh, people that come into my life, you know, and they make an impact on me, I love them hard. And what does he say about what his life was like before the shooting happened? So what's interesting is that Dorian Johnson had kind of finally made it out. Ferguson was an escape for him. And a lot of people, I think, nationally don't get it, don't understand it, but, like, Ferguson's the bird. That's that's period. It's the suburb, even though it's predominantly black, it's still, the grass is cut. (laughs) You can hear lawnmowers. That's where we stay at, so. For Dorian, he had 
after years of living in a really rough part of town, had held a job, had saved a bunch of money, him and his girlfriend and their newborn had moved into this apartment complex in the suburbs. Every morning I get up, I'm running around Canfield with the dog and going to the mailbox, doing some real, like, cool stuff, like, stuff I couldn't do in my old neighborhood. So I was like, all right, let's do it. And how did he come to meet Michael Brown? So in a lot of ways, it was really this chance encounter. Okay, I met Big Mike probably, like, okay, initially. Because it wasn't like y'all were, like, close, close. Nah, right? no way, no. Uh, we Like, we had a mutual friend. A lot of the media coverage suggested that Michael Brown and Dorian Johnson were like best friends. These two guys barely knew each other. They didn't have each other's phone numbers. I didn't learn Mike's name until like two weeks before that, before the actual incident. So what Dorian tells us, and it's the first time he's like fully recounted this, right, is that him and Mike Brown had one mutual friend, right? Another guy who lived in the apartment complex. So they had met in passing. They'd seen each other around. This particular day, though, I was off work. Me coming out of my apartment... I saw them, and I was just like, it, it was a lot of them in my parking lot, so I'm like, oh, okay, what's going on? They, <laughs> they was arguing with uh, some younger guys that stayed next door to me. I'm diffusing the situation because that's where my head is anyway, so I'm like, you know what, y'all? Instead of y'all just being having nowhere to go all the time, you know, you my partner, who is them? And that's when the introductions come, like, mm-hmm. okay. Dorian, because he was really proud to show off his new apartment, invited the group of guys or the guys who hung out in the apartment complex come over and play video games anytime or listen to my listen to music in my living room when everybody came in and then big mike said something i'm like oh, okay because at first i'm like this this big dude <laughs> <laughs> i gotta know everybody who coming in because i know you but i don't know them but when he opened his mouth and said something it was like ah oh, man I, I done went to too many schools with guys like you you just big for no reason like he was very soft-spoken Dorian's about four years older than Mike Brown. He says he could sense that, like, Mike was looking for someone older to look up to or to talk to. He was going through a lot of stuff in life. He was just graduating high school, and he was dealing with his grandmother, who he was really close to, getting sick. And, you know, that was it. And then there's a spiritual side, too, because I'm spiritual. Uh, we talk about the Bible and stuff like that. And so Dorian could sense that, like, Mike was glomming on to him a little bit. That actually happened one day. All that, me knowing who he was, me feeling him, we having a conversation about music about life, God, all that happened in my living room. And that was that. That was that day. Because after that, it was August 9th. That, that's, it got real August 9th. Early that morning of August 9th. It had to be like 2 in the morning. Knock on my door. Me and my fiance, and she, we were actually in bed. So, and it's dark. So when I look, it's a big figure right there and I'm like oh man nah <laughs> who is this at two in the morning and I see it's, it's, it's the guy it's Big Mike Michael Brown shows up at Dorian Johnson's house and knocks on the door says he wants to talk he just went on talking about how he been feeling and uh, he said he had been reading the bible and and he said he been feeling the type of he been feeling somewhere on the inside he said he been feeling like he powerful he was talking about how, how stuff was happening around him that he felt like it was happening because of how he was feeling. Dorian recounts Michael being kind of troubled, actually, that he was feeling as if he was going through a ton. His grandmother had been in the hospital. His stepmother uh, was also hospitalized. He'd been praying a lot, and he had convinced himself that he had the power to heal. He believed that because he was praying for her, that was the reason she was going to make it. Like, 
that he had convinced himself that he'd kind of locked into some type of spiritual power or awakening, and he was having premonitions, and he wanted someone to believe him. His face and the way he was talking, was like, man, he's really serious. He's really serious. Everything he's saying to me, he's believing it, and he's serious. So I'm like, okay. I'm like, I'm finna put some clothes on, man. I got, you know, and I'm finna come, we finna talk. He said, okay. So he went down, I went and back in the house, and I closed my door. And I... Oddly, when I got to, back to my bed, from my door to my bed, I laid back in my bed and fell asleep. It's two in the morning. And so later on that day, they run into each other and Dorian says, all right, walk with me up to the store. Let's have a conversation about what's going on. Everything he was saying and how he was feeling at two in the morning, now he want me to see it. Like he want me to see stuff happening. And so they're, they're walking and talking, and, and Mike's saying, no, my grandma's going to get out of the hospital. And a few minutes later, this car passes us. It's a lady driving. It was a, a man in the back seat, and it was a real elderly lady in the passenger seat with a hospital gown on. And she had a, a hospital wristband on. I could not make this up. This was actually his grandmother. And when I looked away from the car, and, like, he was already looking at me. With a look like I told you, like, like he did that. Like, he did it, really. Like, he had to look like, I told you. Like, that's that power. Like, I'm telling you. And we still walking. And in my mind, this is everything that's going on in my mind. While he's talking to me, I'm like, man, something is just real weird. So we get up here, cars is going, woo, woo. And he like, walk across the street with me. And then he, you know, walks out into traffic without looking both ways. And none of the cars hit him. Like, so he feels like he's having. It just felt like a dream. So Dorian and Mike go to the convenience store, Ferguson Market and Liquor. We're going to get some Rellos. And Mike clearly attempts to rob the store. We've seen the surveillance video. And and what's interesting in the, the video is that Dorian, in the video itself, looks kind of shocked. Yeah, he leaned over. Grabbed the box, a small mini 69 cent cigarette. I was like, remember, he turned around and handed them to me. And that's when it clicked in my head, like, oh, that ain't how it go in stores. And Dorian puts it back on the counter because he's like, what, what are you doing? What's going on? And Dorian, one, says it like, wasn't premeditated. It wasn't like, something they talked about. Like he had a, Dorian had a pocket full of cash ready to you know, purchase some cigarellos. But he felt like this was just another example of Mike trying to show him that like something weird was going on, like that he could get away with things, that this was all going to work out, that he was going to be able to just take these cigarellos from this guy and nothing was going to happen to them, right? And so Dorian, I think, still struggles with and grapples with how to make all of that make sense. He definitely went in the store and stole the rellos, but it wasn't for that purpose. Like, that's what I felt. It was not for that purpose. It was for him showing me something because that whole time it was about him showing me something. And this is something that we haven't heard before. No, I mean, we, we knew that Mike had been upset. We knew that his family members were sick, for example. But the extent to which he had kind of, again, shown up at Dorian Johnson's house unprompted, had all these heavy things he wanted to talk about that day, his behavior during the interaction, all of that is new insight into his state of mind in the minutes and hours before the shooting itself. How does he reflect on the shooting or make sense of it? Does he regret being there that day? Does he feel glad that he was there to be a witness? Does he did it like change his worldview at all? You know, I don't I don't know that he regrets being there. I don't think he does. I think that he feels like he was 
put there for a reason to witness these things and go through these things. He, Dorian talks about being unlucky and very accident prone, right? One of his eyes is discolored because he got hit with a pencil in like the third grade. He's someone who's always kind of found himself in these kind of circumstances. And so I think Dorian, even if it's just a means of explaining it to himself, kind of says, well, if anyone was going to be there, of course it was going to be me. Of course I was going to be the person thrust into all of this stuff. And and I do think that at times wishes it hadn't been him. I think he doesn't feel like he was always equipped or prepared to deal with all of this. He was just a, kind of a poor kid from a big family in St. Louis. He didn't have all of the resources or the money or the, the means to defend himself. But at the end of the day... You know, he looked me in the eye and told me he doesn't have any regrets. He would go do those interviews again. He would tell the story the way he told it again, because this is what he believed happened. And he thinks it's important that someone stood up for Mike Brown, um, and he sees himself as playing that role. Wesley Lowry is a national correspondent for The Post. Opus 25, number one. Sure. <laughs> Alien Tower. Oh and now, one more thing. I come here and it, I, it's like I'm a kid again. And when people used to go to each other's homes and somebody had a piano and they'd stand around and one would play and the others would sing and... Uh, This is the first time I've been in such a glorious place in decades and decades. One of the regulars there, Mariana O, she's 76, and she said that being there reminds her of when she was in the suburbs of Long Island um, and her her mother was playing the piano and her cousins and her siblings were just gathering around the piano to sing. If you would ever change your mind Rebecca Tan is a reporter on the local desk. And a few weeks ago, she was out looking for Filipino restaurants in D.C. when she came across an open piano night in the basement of a place called Purple Patch. Everything about what happens at the Purple Patch on Wednesdays is really, really organic. It started with the piano, which one of the people who helps organize the event found free of Craigslist. And they put it in the basement of this restaurant. And people sort of started coming organically. There's a group of regular musicians that perform, and they happen to all be there on that first Wednesday. So that's Tio Brown, Carol Monday, Kevin Lambert, he's the guy who organizes it, and then Sam Post, who is one of the most conventionally successful musicians who frequents the place. I mean, he's played for Yo-Yo Ma, he's written symphonies, but he loves to spend his time there because it's a place where he gets to meet people from who play all different types of genres and one of the first times I spoke to him, he said it's not just that it's a great place for him to practice new material, but he's actively learning from people and musicians that he would otherwise not have met. Carol Monday is 
really, really special. So she just kept being referred to by person after person as a sort of musical genius. And again, it's one of those people where when you meet them for the first time, you would not expect it. She came into the Purple Patch that first day in jeans, a tank top, and this like denim baseball cap with jewels on it, like plastic jewels. Her nails are like all always an inch long, which is something that Sam Post noticed and like any other pianist will notice because it's the first thing piano teachers tell you to do when you start learning piano is to cut your nails. So Carol describes herself as like the archetype of a suffering artist. She worked in call centers and in retail for most of her life and has written a lot of music, but never really got on a big break, basically. When I was speaking to her, she feels like her luck is, you know, finally on the rise. You know, she's 67 and now is now is going to be the time for, for Carol Monday. We have a good time. We just have a good time. We laugh. We, we you know, we, we make good music. We collaborate. It's, uh, we appreciate it. So, what's not to like? And it's not a complicated concept. It's a piano in a basement, but it brings people a lot of joy. And I think for a lot of people, it brings them to a time in their lives that they don't get to revisit anymore. Rebecca Tan is a local reporter for The Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in this episode at our website, postreports.com. And join in on the conversation online by using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.